I'm Chasen Bart. I'm director for the Center uh, for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to this event uh, hosted by the Center. And it's, I'm delighted to see so many people here. Uh, and the theme of this event is Dispatches from the Dark Side uh, on Torture, Death, and, and the Death of Justice. And um, I would very much like to thank you very much for joining us this evening. And the theme of the theme of this evening represents an area of considerable interest to uh, all of us concerned with human rights. And I'm very delighted indeed to introduce to you Gareth Pierce, whose uh, book of the same title has been published recently. And Gareth Pierce, as I'm sure uh, virtually everyone here would know, is a renowned civil rights solicitor. And she represents individuals who've been uh, the subject of rendition and torture, or held in prisons in the UK on the basis of secret evidence, or in turn in secret prisons abroad under regimes that continue to practice torture. And she's defended a number of suspects under Britain's counter-terrorism legislation, as well as those who returned from Guantanamo Bay. And her many past clients have included the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, Judith Ward, and the family of John Charles de Menezes. And I uh, was talking to Gareth earlier, and I remember very much, uh, even in the 1980s, uh, uh, some of her work, and uh, there was an event uh, linked to uh, Asian defense campaigns of, of young Asians who had been arrested uh, and were charged uh, for defending their own communities uh, uh, under attack from racists. And I remember, even at that time, Gareth being very well known and renowned for her work in taking out cases that were unpopular uh, and difficult cases. And Dispatches from the Dark Side is her latest book and has just been released in paperback and copies of the book are available uh, for sale outside the theatre and if you ask her very nicely she might uh, even sign a copy for you later. And Gareth will be talking about themes from her book and following this there will be plenty of time for questions and discussion. And I need to let you know that this event uh, is being recorded, and if technology permits, it will also be podcast. Uh, and that also includes the question and answer session that follows. And there's also a, re a reception uh, after this event for those who are able to stay for a drink. And I've been told that there's limited space available. So I'm not going to tell you where, where the uh, drinks reception is, but hopefully you'll be able to join us later. And that's going to be a first come, first serve thing, whoever can rush to the place uh, will get to their glass of wine early. And if you want to discuss or comment on this event using Twitter, <coughs> the suggested hashtag uh, for this event is LSAPiers. And this is also on uh, the slide on the screen behind me. So may I ask you to extend your welcome to Gareth Pierce. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me here. Um, just to correct one preconception, although it's very good of Verso to have put some essays between two covers, I wouldn't call it a book, and I certainly wouldn't recommend you to purchase it unless, unless you thought that it would be a good thing to benefit in the unlikely event there are any proceeds, they're going to 
the Helen Bamber Foundation for the Victims of Torture, Mojo, Miscarriages of Justice, and a quite wonderful woman single-handedly in Pakistan who has a tiny foundation to campaign for the disappeared, the families of the disappeared. However, I still don't really recommend it. <laughs> um, this is a six months of anniversaries, in fact, one after the other. 9-11, Patriot Act, invasion of Afghanistan, internment, and now this week we hit one anniversary, which I'm going to talk somewhat about now. It's the anniversary of Shaka Arma, who lived in Britain with his British wife and his British children. They live now in Battersea, the wife and children. But Shaka Arma has been in Guantanamo Bay for 10 years since Tuesday of this week. 10 years. And I'm going to attempt to talk about the circumstances in which it's come about. I'm sorry, did you hear anything of that? Because I could start again, but in summary, Shaka Arma, 10 years in Guantanamo on Tuesday of this week. Now how could it have come about? How can it be that a British resident has been unlawfully held as a hostage, unlawfully, there, in the grimmest of prisons, if you call it a prison. How can it be that he got there in the first place and he's there ten years later? How could it be a hostage held by our closest ally? How is it possible? He and his wife traveled to Afghanistan to live in Kabul, to teach in a school for the Arabic-speaking sons and daughters of expatriates there. There are so many preconceptions, so many false stigmas. But it's interesting to know they were teaching in a school for girls as well as boys. October the 7th, 2001, was the beginning of the Allied invasion. Carpet bombing from the air, bombing Kabul, a residential city, and the Amas, the Amma family, had to flee and they lived in their car for a month with three young children and a fourth on the way. 
They were refugees forced to flee. And Chaka Armour was bought, betrayed for money, and he was sold on twice. And the last time by the Northern Alliance to the Americans. And on Christmas Day, 2001, December 25th, 2001, he was helicoptered to Bagram, a disused freezing airbase, a cavernous interior in which there were hastily constructed partitions of razor wire. Unlawful, no legitimate reason in law why he was there. He'd been sold and bought and now he was to be tortured. And if you had gone in to that disused air hangar and walked through the razor wires, you would have seen the prisoners sitting frozen in frozen positions, stress positions they're called, stress positions, torture, a forbidden form of torture. We promised, the UK promised, the European Court of Human Rights in the late 1970s, we would never, ever, ever resort to the use of stress positions again or hooding, or sleep deprivation, or forced standing. We promised we would never, ever do it again. We had done it to Irish prisoners to obtain confessions in the north of Ireland. Walking through the razor wires, those prisoners who have come back and spoken of what happened, or Shaka Armour when he finally got to see a US cleared lawyer in Guantanamo. Walking through the razor wires two by two in their North Face jackets were instantly recognizable British agents. The prisoners could see exactly who they were, where they came from, but they too could see everything. Upstairs on a balcony were the interrogation rooms. Everyone could hear the sound, people screaming. If you looked across from where the prisoners were sitting, not allowed to move, not allowed to speak to each other, frozen hour after hour, day after day, freezing, freezing in thin shirts. If you just looked across and a door opened for a moment, you could see someone hanging by his wrists. This was all unlawful. It was all criminal. And Chaka Armour himself was savagely beaten in one interrogation room on one day. His head repeatedly 
crashed against a wall. And what was remarkable about his experience, his experience was absolutely not unusual, but what was remarkable, and he was the only one, was that a British agent was present, as he described years later. Now, one by one, 15 of the 16 British residents and British citizens who went to Guantanamo, Shaka Arma on Valentine's Day 10 years ago, brought back news of what had happened to them, but they came back. Now, how is it and why is it that there's one still there of whom the Blair government washed its hands? The coalition says that it is trying, but it says there's an impasse. Now, last year, if I'm commending a book to you, or books, I commend not the one that's here tonight, but the memoirs of Tony Blair and his amanuensis, Alistair Campbell, which I read last year. And they are informative in the extreme. Maybe, like me, you had thought that the attack upon fundamental procedural rights, the avoidance of absolutely non-negotiable international restrictions upon what governments can permit and what they can't permit, you may have thought, as did I, that it all came from the USA. But having read Tony Blair's memoirs, I see much more clearly the degree of responsibility that we have. What he said, what he says in his memoirs, he says, as soon as the planes went into the Twin Towers, I saw it all. I understood everything. I saw that there were splashes of colour around the world, but that they were all joined up. They were one. Kashmir, Chechnya, Algeria, the Yemen, Palestine. This was his analysis, that the infinitely varied movements of political Islam were joined together and they constituted the enemy. And he said, when the pieces were shaken, I saw that the pieces were shaken at this point of time, and that before the pieces settled, this was our opportunity to reorder the world. These are Blair's remarks. This was his plan. He says, 
to reorder the world. And he talks about Islamism, Islamism, in terms of it being a disease. He talks about it as a virus that has to be eradicated, a strain, these are the words he uses, a strain to be eliminated. Now it's a crude template and one that clearly intelligent and informed observers would decry and did decry. Edward Said, for one, at the time, said, we cannot adopt a mindset of oversimplification in which there is the good and the evil, like a cartoon character of Popeye endlessly bashing another cartoon character. But this was the crude template that our Prime Minister was seeing as, in his words again, visionary. He said, I gave a visionary talk in which I set out how we should reorder the world. And he talks about the Arab and the Muslim world as a world in which there is a choice between a ruling elite very often with the right idea and a popular movement with the wrong one. And so just as in the Cold War, it seems reading this that this is indeed how it all began. And that since then, we have involved ourselves through this analysis of the rest of the world, and it's affected our domestic policy, our foreign policy. This has become how we have approached the rest of the world. And just as in the Cold War, it isn't always done by invasion, it can be done by the fighting of proxy wars, by alliances with other regimes, including very nasty regimes, or by identifying presumed sympathizers at home. Now at the time, he says, Mr. Blair says, there was a choice, only two ways to manage this, either to ring the Taliban with sanctions and alliances, or to confront, confront them militarily. And although some of his advisers were saying, we should perhaps look more closely at US policy and see, has this provoked this action? Or saying, we shouldn't bomb Afghanistan and kill innocent people. We should be very sure of what the targets are. And so blurring, blurring any comprehension that there was a small group there which chose to act in a classically terroristic way 
to cause shock and horror, but failing to analyze that the mindset of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda was not shared by a government, de facto government there, which found it uncomfortable and disagreed with those guests who have become to a degree unwelcome. It's important to wrestle with this because this is how we began ten years ago and this is how it was that bombs fell on Kabul, a residential city and this is how in this instance Shaka Arma and his family came to flee. Mr. Blair identified this as war. He said this is war unlike any other. The enemy is unlike any other. It has to be fought in a different way. And to do this he claimed exceptionalism. That's what you do. You say we know there are rules but this is so extraordinary we have to set the rules aside and so if you read what Alastair Campbell says and what Tony Blair says and match the timeline of what they say you'll find that four days after 9-11 they're saying urgent discussion is needed for changes to our civil liberties, our human rights and our civil liberties. Urgent changes are need, needed in the UK. The balance had changed and ignored entirely the possibility of dialogue or discussion. And when eventually Blair's answer in the UK, having been to say we'll introduce internment, we'll lock people up indefinitely without trial, that's our gesture we're making. When the House of Lords said that is unlawful, we don't condone arbitrary detention without trial here, we don't have it, Mr Blair writes off that judgment as grossly stupid. He said, it was grossly stupid. I couldn't understand what they thought they were doing. And he says, the Taliban had to know that we would hurt them if they didn't yield up Osama bin Laden. And so it's into those concepts that you can make exceptions that Shaka Arma fell straight into the middle. And it's very clear that provided any individual was perceived to be an Islamist, then he became a non-person, a virus to be eliminated.
And the concept of exceptionalism must be, if you view the individual that way, to take them out of circulation permanently. Arbitrary detention is criminal. Indefinite arbitrary detention is a criminal act. It has not attracted the same degree of condemnation as the use of torture. But if you think for a minute, why is it as iniquitous as torture? It's because, in fact, it's the precondition for torture to take place. Secrecy is all. And so it was that the entire cabinet entered into a collusion with what Mr. Blair was doing. He said, this is war. Exceptions are justified to what we know absolutely to be the way we should behave. And so, to the outside world, the cabinet and Mr. Blair were saying there are some British citizens or British residents who are in the hands of this or that regime. And they have gone to Guantanamo. And we're doing all our best, the best we can, to get them back, to make connections with the Americans. But the Americans are in charge of them and we are having no effect. This is what they said then and year after year, having gone to see the Foreign Office during that first year, 2002, on many occasions with the families of young men, British men in Guantanamo. They looked us in the eye and said, we don't know anything, we accept it's a wrong thing for them to be there, but we don't know anything. Well, they were there. And when the Guantanamo returnees, the men who came back, decided that they would litigate and bring action against MI5, MI6, the Attorney General, the Foreign Office, the Home Office, for British complicity in their rendition and torture. Grudgingly, after two years of litigation, a number of disclosures, which have to be made in civil lit litigation, began to be made. And this is what we saw. The internal cabinet memoranda of January 2002. Jack Storr, the Foreign Secretary, describing in emails to his colleagues in the cabinet as the transfer of detainees, British detainees, to Guantanamo as the best way to meet our counter-terrorism objective. And he rejects the only alternative of repatriation to the United Kingdom. As a cabinet office memo, 
in which someone has scribbled to someone else on the back of the agenda for the 11th of January a query about the legality of the US detention of non-prisoner of war combatants. Someone else has scribbled underneath it. Consider later if we have to in extremists, but it's still dodgy, I would think. Handwritten Home Office note. UK to press for return? Don't press for anything. Number 10 view. 6th of February. David Blunkett, Home Secretary. In no hurry to see any individuals return to the UK. 9th of February, Foreign Office Minister Ben Bradshaw. We need to do all we can to avoid the detainees being repatriated to the UK. And on the 27th of February, Home Secretary's view, the longer they stay in Cuba, Afghanistan, the better. A memo scribbled in Tony Blair's handwriting say, I was initially skeptical about claims of torture. We must establish it isn't happening. And then a note from the Foreign Office to the British Embassy draft for a statement saying officials have confirmed that detainees are being treated humanely. If pressed for details, we would say because of the special circumstances of this visit, we're not prepared to go into further detail. The oddity, the oddity, this draft is written before anyone goes. The British Embassy responds with suggested amendments which we'll clear with the Americans, including a comment on the US efforts being made to ensure humanitarian treatment according to international norms. Our team was able to verify this was the case. And a minister, initials HH, says rather bizarre to see statement before inspection. Now, undoubtedly, when the coalition government came in in 2010, there was a softer rhetoric. A manifesto for change was being articulated, more respect uttered for the rule of law, fewer cartoon depictions. The Prime Minister announced an inquiry to get to the bottom of what had happened in the previous eight years. Harriet Harman, now speaking for the opposition, reiterated our condemnation of the US Guantanamo Detention Center. It's clearly in breach of the law, it's why it's not on the US mainland, and why we made great efforts to secure the release of British nationals and British residents. She asks whether the Prime Minister is continuing the efforts we made to bring back the final remaining British resident, Shaka Arma for breathtaking hypocrisy that's hard to match many of the young men who returned give searing accounts of the torture 
they experienced. If you were to meet them and they were to confide in you, you would find out that their limbs are distorted, some of them. Under close x-ray, you can see muscles in their shoulders destroyed where they've been hung. Backs ruined for life. Men who can't live in their house if mice come into the house. Can't live in the house for a moment in London because of the memory of the rats in the dark prison. This is what we have allowed to be done to human beings. And much of our system of justice has become riddled with the ever-present spectre of torture and the contamination it has produced. It's laden with euphemisms. Torture's called intensive interrogation. Kidnapping's called extraordinary rendition. And all in secret, only occasionally, accidentally, we come to know of what has gone on. But every time there is a legal victory of sorts, of processes that condone secrecy, that depend on secrecy, depend on secret evidence that has come from intelligence services, that has been filtered, laundered through and comes from torture, every time there is a victory, then the government, whichever government, moves the goalposts and introduces a different form of executive authority to sustain the same. Once the pursuer decides that exceptionalism to the rules is justified he adapts his mindset in an endless quest to obtain the evidence to establish what he has anticipated and what he believes. And so if you are following the mindset of Mr. Blair and you believe that there is a joined up evil that is what you see and that is what you are determined to find. A US State Department spokesman was asked, how do you distinguish between freedom fighters and terrorists? And he said, we don't. Now, if you think of the Arab Spring. And if you think of 
the regimes we backed. Mubarak in Egypt, Ben Ali in Tunisia, and on and on, and most obviously and spectacularly, Gaddafi in Libya. That in fact is how we have crafted our foreign and domestic policy during the past 10 years. And we have locked up without trial here Egyptian dissidents, Jordanian dissidents, Libyan dissidents, on the basis of secret evidence that inevitably has come from the regimes that wish those dissidents ill. How does the new government reverse the alliances that were formed, that have been abandoned late in the day when revolutions have happened? How does it change all that, having expressed its wish, as Cameron said, to draw a line under the past, to get to the bottom of it, a contradiction, to draw a line under the past and get to the bottom of it? Coming back to Shaka Arma, we continue to turn a blind eye when it suits to the regimes we determine we wish to be our allies. And Shaka Arma has the misfortune to have as his country of origin in which he will be unsafe and subject to unthinkable treatment were he to return. His country of origin is Saudi Arabia and his captors are the USA and neither, neither country is the new government, the coalition government, any more willing to confront than was the old government. And so, looking at more fragments, we only see fragments and we only see them utterly accidentally. But looking at more fragments of gov government internal memoranda disclosed during the civil litigation for Guantanamo men here it becomes clear at a key moment of time some years ago when one by one all the other men who had been in Guantanamo came back here even those who were being prosecuted before military commission however serious the allegation all came back except for Shaka Arma, we see just a few tiny fragments of memos will help you get him to the Saudis. We have some comments to make to the Americans about Shaka's return, Mr. Arma's return to Saudi Arabia. 
there was a silent secret conspiracy to get him back and yet to a regime more severe than any under the Afghanistan of the Taliban where his wife, his British wife were she even able to be in Saudi Arabia where he returned to arbitrary detention there that's what they wanted arbitrary detention in Saudi get him out of Guantanamo Guantanamo has become an embarrassment but not back here to Saudi where his wife would be a non-person where women if they even try to drive a car are subject to being flogged this is what we were willing to do and he is still there and there is a total failure to exert any effective energetic demand as the most trusted ally to get this man back who has been charged with no offence he remains in solitary confinement he is a strong-willed protester he goes on hunger strike he is force-fed tubes through his nose all the time on and on for ten years and we don't get him back we continue to have relationships with countries that torture we continue to have relationships with countries that detain people arbitrarily we continue people come back now here to this country and say to this day I was held here or there MI5 were there I was being tortured they knew to this day it's happening but if there is one case that should wake us up grab us by the throat and say you cannot go on it's the revelations from the officers in Tripoli where they found the telegrams from MI6 to Musa Kusa about the rendition of two Libyans the deliberate rendition as they were in transit from Hong Kong to asylum in Britain the deliberate diversion of their journey to ensure they were rendered by US jet Belhaj now the leader of the revolutionary army in Libya and Abu Muntia dear Musa Kusa we know we didn't provide the planes but we helped you in every way and what were they asked what were they required to say MI5 visited them when they were tortured in prison in Tripoli your conditions will get better if you simply provide the missing link that Libyan dissidents in the UK are linked to Al-Qaeda they were not they were opponents of Gaddafi but this is not just the smoking gun this is proof positive of criminality now 
last year you may remember seeing on the television news elderly survivors of the Mau Mau coming to the courts on the strand elderly men and women to gain an acknowledgement that 50 years before they had been subjected by the British Army in Kenya to the most horrific forms of torture. Castration, rape, unspeakable criminal acts. And in their litigation it emerged from documents found in Foreign Office archives. It emerged 50 years before knowledge of what was being done went right to the top right to the top what one can say is that if a minister then 50 years ago senior civil servant senior foreign office official senior army officer <coughs> had been prosecuted, had been charged, had been convicted, had been sentenced, perhaps to life imprisonment for the worst of crimes, if that had happened, there would never have been the events of the last ten years that have been perpetrated by our government complicity of our government it would not have happened now perhaps you know that after the Guantanamo litigation the new coalition government sought to negotiate to settle the claims as Cameron said draw a line under the past. But during that litigation they had fought to have a secret court. So although it's a simple civil action, you hurt me, I claim damages, the proposal was that a judge consider the defense the government was putting up, decide the case and you'd win or lose but you wouldn't know why. Now they lost that. The Supreme Court said absolutely not we're not going to tear up 800 years of history but now the new government has brought in legislation that there should be a secret court this is a green paper now so all of this depends upon our not knowing But if we know, now we know. The question is, what do we do? That's the question.
thank you, Gareth, for uh, very much indeed for a characteristically softly spoken but powerful talk. And we have plenty of time for questions, and I know many people will have questions, so I'll take questions in groups of three. But also you'll see our wonderful stewards around. I can't see a steward at the top. Oh, yes, I can now. Um, and they will come to you if you indicate with your hand, and I'll point uh, you to them, and they'll come to you with a microphone. Please uh, wait until they hold a microphone in front of you before you ask a question. Otherwise, uh, the rest of the audience won't be able to hear you. And I know this can cause a bit of a delay, but please be patient with that. And also, when you ask your question, can I... Uh, request that you state your name and where you're from, your organization. And can I also request that the length of the question you ask is shorter than the answer it expects? <laughs> Please. Uh, I know that people may want to make statements, and if, if people want to make short statements that might drive the discussion forward, that is always welcome and helpful. But it would be good to get as much participation as we can. Um, so please keep your questions brief and we'll see how we go. Um, who would like to go first? I can't see any hands. There's a person at the, the front at the top there. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lee from Goldsmiths. Uh, um, I've got the privilege of living in Sidcup and my local MP is no less than James Brokenshire who's a junior minister at the Home Office in charge of counter-terrorism. He's not my best drinking mate, but I do chat to him often enough. So the question to you is, Gareth, what sort of issue should I raise directly with James Brokenshire next time I see him? How can I put him on the spot? Okay, and we have a question. Yeah. Jim Craig Gray, I'm an independent citizen. Um, from your description of Tony Blair's um, beliefs and views and, and policy, he sounded almost messianic to me. Do you think his religious faith had something to do with his, his policies? Okay, and I believe we have a question just here. Uh, Tessa Mays, a journalist. Um, do you think that while Britain ratifies uh, treaties for the UK but doesn't extend them to overseas territories, has also helped create this kind of legal black hole and therefore human rights abuses abroad, um, and that's why they've done that? Okay, and I think we can probably take a fourth question because there's a this uh, person right at the back there. Uh, Renata Sampson, I work for the Right Honourable David Davis. Um, with regards to the Justice and Security Green Paper, it seems that no one understands exactly what is meant by hearing a civil case in secret and that the findings of that will never then be released. I'd like to know, from your point of view, how we can get government to understand that this is uh, literally the death of justice. Okay, that's excellent. Thank you. That's a diverse range of interesting questions. Karen? Um, perhaps starting the last one first. Um, perhaps it doesn't commend itself to you, but perhaps some of the things we've talked about this evening, if you found them sufficiently shocking or disturbing, do represent a searing example of how, how if you don't know 
you don't know. <laughs> and so it isn't simply a question of a litigant wanting money or whatever it is, some form of satisfaction or reparation. What we're talking about in many of these potential cases is things that we absolutely have to know as a society. And there has never been, for instance, an adequate debate of relating to the work of the intelligence services at the time they were put under statutory um, control, at the time they were formally regulated or even recognized. Um, in the case of MI6, they didn't formally exist until relatively recently. But we haven't, we haven't as a nation had any public debate about the limits we want to set on the work that they do, which isn't a condemnation of those services, it's condemnation of us as a society. We have a right to say, and it's only reasonable to expect that they should have parameters that are a formal part of their employment. Um, and much of what has happened in the Ten years has been um, there's been a reliance upon there being a degree of confusion or obfuscation about what is torture, um, but that isn't adequate and it isn't good enough. Now, civil litigation, with all its um, problems, is nevertheless a way of attempting to arrive at a truth between parties and um, getting judgment on that truth and if what one party says is never known it, it not only is absolutely ludicrous insult to a concept of fair play of justice between two parties but it's depriving society of what it needs to know to order itself that, that's what I think. Um, next, I have such a bad memory. Well, one, one was about the religion of Tony Blair. Tony Blair's religion? I, do, I, I don't know. Um, I, th I think in a way one should take religious belief out of this. Um, it's something different. It's... Um, I suppose it's arrogance in an in a absolutely enormous way. Arrogance and delusion, and it's a very dangerous combination. And maybe it was personal to him, his whole personality or psyche. But it isn't just him. There are all his colleagues in the cabinet. There are all the senior civil servants. There are all the employees. There isn't a squeak out of anybody. And so although, you know, he was the, he was the main man, um, although that, I think there is a collective responsibility that, that, that in fact, um, we all bear. That's what I think. We could see it. We could hear it. These are, you know, half of this is not just retrospective memoirs. This is speeches he was making at the time, Labour Party conference, trade union conference. He was 
He was saying all this stuff about kaleidoscope, pieces falling, we all, we all reorder the world. He was saying it. We all heard it and did nothing about it. So, anyway, that's Tony Blair. Well, um, there was a, a question about the meaning of holding uh, civil cases in secret and also a question about the legal black hole between around human rights. Yes, and, and also about what to say to... Um, yes. Um, I read that he had um, travelled to Jordan to negotiate with Jordan about um, taking a particular person who was being deported back who would face evidence that came from torture. I think he's just been there or he is there at the moment. Um, I think it would be interesting to have a discussion with him about um, whether he in any way thought that he was um, undermining Britain's commitment to eradication of torture, given that the case that he was um, sent or volunteered to, to negotiate on, um, the European Court had condemned the prospect of sending someone to a country where the evidence it regularly uses comes from torture, but where the court had found that the evidence in this case um, did come from torture. It's very hard. We've been talking about avoidance for a decade. The avoidance for a decade of confronting the morality and the legality or the immorality and the illegality of what has been done and this was a government that vowed to do differently, that said, we deplore what's gone on for the previous eight years, but yet losing its nerve at a very early stage, going on with the idea of secret courts, going on with the idea of deportation and relationships with regimes that torture. Um, a conversation along those lines. Okay, we have. Uh, and, sorry, it's that lady's question about extraterritoriality. In in some ways, in some ways, we're bound to behave in an extraterritorial way, and that's what part of this is grappling with. It's that we can't shrug off the responsibility in law um, for failing to um, challenge or condemn countries that torture. Uh, the UN Convention for the Prohibition of Torture, the UN Convention makes it a requirement that every signatory state, and we're one, should take all efforts to eliminate torture and so by colluding with regimes, we don't have to worry about are we empowered to do it outside our own boundaries. We're required to do it. It isn't exhaustive, but there are certain key 
areas of law where we where it, we're empowered and required to do something. Okay, we have a question from the uh, front here. Thank you, Peter Greaves. Uh, the government has recently refused to have a man extradited to Jordan uh, in case in his trial there evidence would be used against him that was allegedly obtained under torture. Mm -hmm. This seems a completely different state of mind to that which you've been describing. Comments on it, please. Okay, and we have another question from the middle road there. Man in the brown jacket. Yeah. Just that. No, just that, yeah. Gareth, what news of my brother Megrahi? And a third Say question from just there. I didn't hear uh, <coughs> Keith Hendel from the United Nations Association. I struck by two of your. I was. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Sorry. I was struck by two of your statements. Uh, proof positive of criminality, you say, untested in court. Much of our system has become riddled with torture. Quotes, untested in court. Uh, I'm not uh, inclined to uh, believe either of those statements. But I would like you to talk about the 10 people, British residents and British citizens, who were detained in Guantanamo. Is it your contention that they are totally innocent? Of course, untested in court is your, your best defense, but uh, is it your contention? Okay, I know there are, uh, there's a forest of hands, but those are three quite meaty uh, questions, so if you'd like to respond to them first. Yes. Um, which was the first? It was one about um, Sorry, your your question was that um, the European Court had prohibited the deportation of someone to Jordan. It, it in fact wasn't extradition; it was deportation, um, and that this country was complying with that. Was that your question? Sorry. I think it's, diffi it's difficult for this country to, it's difficult for the government to find it comfortable to sit with absolute prohibitions on particular activities when it considers that the exceptionalism should apply, that this is a case that deserves an exceptional approach. And so what you see is the, the tension between the wish to have exceptionalism and the appreciation that some things are prohibited. Now, in some cases, one is watching that quite, quite graphically being played out. And I would have said in that particular case, one's watching it being 
graphically played out day by day. So you do have um, members of the government saying um, quite openly, we don't wish to comply with what the European Court has said. We should reconsider our position on rulings by the European Court. That's being openly articulated and there's a debate about it. So I'm not sure that it's possible to say it's black or white. I'm, I think agreeing with you that that is an example of the tensions that exist. Now, one can take an absolutist position and I'm sure I am saying that it's non-negotiable. You cannot give to that exceptionalist point of view. You can't withdraw from your international treaty obligations. But that's part of the debate. Maybe one absolutist position against something more nuanced. But that's, that's the guts of the debate. Okay, there was a question asking about uh, news of Al Megrahi and also about the innocence of the people who were. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I know no more about um, what has happened to Al Megrahi than I read in the papers. I know no more than that. I, I know that I think next week there is a significant new book coming out which talks about the evidence um, at his trial and is to produce new evidence that may permit a different look at whether he should have been appropriately convicted of the Lockerbie bombing or not. Um, I think it is possible to look at his trial, the evidence in his trial, and see many of the sadly classical features that led to repeated wrongful convictions in this country that we know well. Um, problematic forensic evidence, um, pretty disgraceful purported ID evidence, and just say, well, resting on those features, it looks like a profoundly unsafe conviction, but I know no more than that. And um, the, the men who came back from Guantanamo, f 15, yeah, f 15 came back. Um, I don't know all of them um, well. I don't, know, I don't know all of their cases well. Uh, but for many of them, including Shaka Armour, uh, the Americans found no basis to charge them at all, even before a military commission. They found no basis to charge them. Some, like Binyam Mohammed, were charged before military commission. Um, but, but actually you're wrong about um, acceptance of the most horrific forms of torture for some of those men. You're wrong. It is completely accepted and you wouldn't find a word said by the government to suggest it wasn't true. Innocent of what? What terrorist crime? 
I've told you the story, which I believe entirely, of one man, Shaka Ama, in Kabul, teaching in a school with his wife and children, bombed out of his home. What is he meant to have done? The Americans haven't charged him with a single thing. What's he meant to have done? What terrorist crime? He's one example. Okay, if we can move on. There's a question uh, from the gentleman at, right at the back. Frank Arnold, independent doctor. I've examined approximately a thousand people who've been subjected to torture. Sorry, may I ask you to speak up just a little bit? Sorry. Uh, Frank Arnold, independent doctor. I've examined something like a thousand people who have been subjected to torture and have physical evidence to that point. The vast majority of them have been coerced into, con into confessing to almost anything, however bizarre. You can make anyone say anything under torture. To extend the argument a bit further, it is not just British collusion in torture, it is also a British practice of torture, by which I mean the Bahamusa murder and the very large number of Iraqis now bringing cases against the British government, not only for having been tortured in Basra, but for worse, for medical collusion, doctors and nurses actively taking part in that torture. So it's not just a question of collusion, it's a question of active participation as it was in Kenya. Okay, thank, thank you for that statement. There's a question, I believe, from a man just in the middle. No? You changed your mind? Okay. Uh, from the front here, then. Hi. Um, Maggie Burns, CAJ in Northern Ireland. First of all, I just publicly wanted to say thank you so much to Gareth for all of the work that she does, not simply giving this speech, but just incredible. And then, really, my question was, you focused rightly and understandably on the last 10 years and the exceptionalism of this particular epoch. But you also alluded to Kenya, the Mau Mau, that exceptional period. You referred to the European court case that found the techniques in Northern Ireland. You know, that was an exceptional period. I mean, are we bound as a society to keep creating a new exceptionalism? Have you got any thoughts about how we stop that rot? Sorry, very big question. Oh, I said, uh, sorry. Okay, can we just take one more question? Anyone? Um, it's, this side of the hall seems to be much more active, and this side is not participating, and I'm definitely not short-sighted. So is anybody from this side? Uh, yeah. I can't see you, but I'll, I'll, I'll be able to hear your voice. Hello, I'm Claire. I'm a law student. And I just wondered, on the question of secret evidence and the recent Green Paper, I remember reading in some of the judgments that the Special Advocate Procedure sufficiently protects against the appellant's rights. What do you think about that? Um, I, I believe the um, Special Advocates have just put in uh, evidence en masse as a group to the, uh, in relation to the Green Paper and they have said it absolutely doesn't work, that we're relied on to, to give a, provide a fig leaf for this procedure by suggesting we can represent a, a person's interests in private without ever speaking to them or telling them 
what we see, but actually it's a nonsense. We don't do a, a reasonable job at all, if any. So I, I, I'd accept what they say. I don't know what they see and do in secret, but if they say it, that seems pretty convincing. And um, I've forgotten your question. Ah. Endlessly well, generating that's the, um, that's the history of the 20th century and the 21st century so far. That is our history, that there is a constant... This is, this is the battle that, the, you know, you, you think of the history of the 20th century and the governments who claimed that whatever their policies were, whatever their vision, whatever their view, it justified what they did, however horrific, whatever crimes against humanity. And then we see that that was false and wrong and we deplore it. But it's so easy if Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about what the French did in Algeria in the 1950s and he said how can it be that we the French so soon after we heard French men and women screaming from the cells of their Nazi torturers how can it be that we are doing the same to others within a year or two years of signing up to the Declaration of Human Rights, the UN Charter, etc. I suppose the one thing we learn is the fragility of the laws that we believe are inalienable and permanent and how it's utterly wrong to believe in their certainty and durability and how we have to fight and fight and fight. There is no happy ending. Okay. Um, I think. Could I say yeah. one thing? Sure. I'm sorry. Please. Just in case anyone wanted to think what could be done, I've brought some e petitions. If you log into an e petition, I'm sure you know what to do, and I don't. There's an e-petition for Shaka Armour, just started, approved by the Cabinet Office. They took out the word torture, but they've left the rest. If, if there are 100,000 endorsements of the e-petition, he gets a parliamentary debate. So I've just brought a few along in case anyone wanted them. Okay. Um I think we should end there in terms of questions, though I'd like to take Chair's privilege and ask a question which sort of follows on from uh, the question uh, that was raised by the gentleman there. And it's really on behalf of uh, the Master's students in human rights uh, who've been grappling with a, quite a difficult set of issues. Um, and it's not necessarily a legal issue, but it's a moral and ethical issue. And it is, um, and, and I've asked it of several uh, speakers, but um, I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on it. And it is really about how does one vigorously defend the human rights of those who advocate the violation of the human rights of others or might have enacted 
violations of human rights of others and whether what kind of moral or ethical issues that might raise. And I just wondered whether you had any thoughts about that as well. Of those who violate? Or advocate the violation. I think, I think one has to... Um, One has to reject the view that there is anyone who is not a human being. And one should not superimpose on a person a, a view of condemnation for all time. I can think of 101 examples of people that one would run a mile from having a close association with on the basis of what they do. But I nevertheless do think that there has to be dialogue, there has to be understanding and you can't you simply can't cast swathes of humanity into the darkness and think they are evil and sometimes comprehension it doesn't mean you support it doesn't mean you endorse but comprehension can be critical to moving forward so okay, thank, you, thank you for that. I'm sure our students would appreciate that. Before my formal thanks to Gareth, I'd like to remind you that the Centre for the Study of Human Rights has a very, very busy and active programme of events. And our next event is on the 24th of February at lunchtime. And it's, on, uh, it's a discussion on the role of human rights in post-Soviet Russia. And events in March also include ones um, such as the former UN Special Representative in Sudan um, on his uh, attempts to raise the alarm about violence against civilians in Darfur. And we also have Shami Chakrabarti on the debate about the Bill of Rights and the Human Rights Act in the UK. And full information uh, about all the events are available at the LSE uh, Human Rights website. There'll now be a reception on the fifth floor of the old building, uh, which you're very welcome to uh, join us in. Though, as I said, the limited spaces. So, if you know where the old building is, you can run to it. Uh, don't just go just yet, please. Um, if you want a guarantee of a drink. But can I thank Gareth Pierce again for coming to speak to us this evening? Thank you very much indeed.